Is it cocoa or is it cacao? Well, it depends on who in the world you're asking. Chocolate, as a finished product, has nuances in the supply chain, almost more diverse than the packaging we're now seeing it wrapped in at checkout counters. These beans were once so valuable they were used as currency, yet now bean-to-bar makers are struggling to convey chocolate's true value to their customers. Literally, there are people holding a, you know, this was in Europe, a three-euro bottle of water, hemming and hawing about whether they'll pay six euros for a bar of chocolate. You're like, that's water! Like, you literally could have gotten it out of the tap, yeah. and you paid three euros for that bottle, but this, like, bar of chocolate that has had multiple people in the value chain and all these kind of things, like, six euros too much for that? Greg Delisander, chief sourcing officer of the San Francisco-based Dandelion Chocolate, joins us today to take us inside an industry transitioning away from a standard based on lack of defects to one focused on quality based on flavor. I'm Carolyn Kisser. I'm Colleen King. Thanks for joining us today on Sorceress, where we're talking chocolate, and maybe, if you're nice, we'll share our bars with you. Maybe. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. This was really fun because it's dandelion chocolate. They've been around for a while. So this was really fun to be able to sit down with Greg. I've seen his name and saw that he does lectures on sourcing. So it was rad to sit down and just have a one-on-one. Yeah, they do all sorts of educational things at their chocolate factory, right? Yeah. What's so cool about dandelion is that they have these physical locations that you can go in and try so many different kinds of chocolate. And it's sort of, it is an educational space by design. You can see them making the bars. You can have all kinds of things that I've never tried before, like cacao pulp. Have you had their cacao pulp smoothie? Yeah, you got me one and it was so good. It's so delicious. I wish that, I think that that could be like an American staple in the smoothie market if they just figured out how to do it. But from what I understand, preserving and going through that pulp is, it's a process. Yeah, so it's funny because now out in Brooklyn, I see cacao pulp smoothies at these smoothie shops uh, that are owned by people from, you know, Central and South America. And so it's funny because it's in San Francisco. It's at this fancy chocolate shop in here. It's in a bunch of smoothie shops. So we got to get you a cacao uh, smoothie when you come visit. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get going, let's talk about Danielle's music segment because as you know, if you're a regular listener, Danielle is our music curator and an ethnomusicologist. And after the interview, she does a breakdown of the music and culture in, you know, inspired by the region or the ingredient that we're talking about. And today, though, we chose to feature West Africa. And, you know, we talk about a few different countries in this episode, but the West African region produces the majority of cacao in the world. And the Ivory Coast, which for context is slightly larger than the state of New Mexico, produces 30% of the world's production. So although we don't spend a lot of time in the interview talking about that, that is where most of the chocolate that you've consumed is likely from. Yeah, and as I was reading up on this, I found out there's 6 million people working in the industry there and 600,000 individual farmers. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And wait for it, the plant is not native to that region. So the cacao tree is actually native to the Amazon basin and other tropical areas of South and Central America. So again, another product of colonialism. Yeah, and that's not unique to the cacao tree. Uh, You know, horticultural movement as colonialism progressed around the world is very, very popular. Growing up, you know, my dad was a horticulturist. So we'd, we'd walk around and how I do with you, you know, I'm like, there's an agave, there's a blah, blah. Uh, he would point out which species were not native to the areas that we'd be walking around. And as a kid, you don't really understand. You're like, well, how did it get there from Spain? How did it get to California from Spain? And then, you know, as you're older and you understand colonialism, you're like, okay, horticulture worldwide is like very mixed up in terms of where everything actually came from. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting because then all of a sudden that's the dominant, you know, West Africa is just immediately associated with cacao yeah yeah for sure and but back in central and south america it was first cultivated by the mayans right and i think they were using it as currency it was like so valuable which i think is really strange how we're devaluing it now and back then that was like what they were bartering with yeah from what i was reading you know it was sort of saved for the elite and warriors to be able to consume and then used as in a preserved form to be able to trade and when you go into dandelion you can try 
a bite of all of their bars. It's just out there with tongs for you to try. And I actually used dandelion chocolate when I was doing a food talk at a high school and I made a calibration sheet and I put different kinds of chocolate in there and then I projected this this sensory wheel where people where everyone would go up and sort of put a little a sticky note up against it and people were actually they were really good these kids pomegranate and florals and this I mean maybe they were just doing it yeah. to yuck me up but no it's it's really interesting to taste things with kids because once you get into adulthood you have all this pressure on your brain of what you're supposed to be tasting because we have all this revelry around being a taster and being a sommelier and being all these things and so adults are afraid to say what they are actually tasting and kids are like on the nose they'll be like this tastes like blueberries dipped in mint with dog hair on it and you're like <laughs> You're totally not wrong about that at all. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much to Greg and the whole Dandelion crew for their help with this episode and to Greg for stopping by the studio. And let's get into the episode. Let's do it. I would love to know, first of all, if you can go through the life cycle of the plant. Yeah, we'll do. And then after that, we'll talk about what exactly is the difference of what it's called based on that stage. Okay, perfect. When they're planted as a seedling, um, it takes takes somewhere between two and five years for them to get mature based on a variety of factors. How much sun they're getting when they're young. Um, so there are, so some people just plant seeds from a pod and grow a tree out of that. And some people will um, take those seedlings and graft known material from another tree onto that. You're essentially making a clone of the other tree. Now, one of the things that's really important for everyone to understand about cocoa beans is, like, in a cocoa pod, there's 50-ish beans. You'd say, like, 30 to 50 beans. Um, every single one of those beans is genetically unique. What size are they? Um, they're, uh, they're about the size of an almond. Okay. Yeah, they can be a little bit bigger than that, but maybe the size of an almond. Um, but they're all genetically unique. And that means that if someone just plants all the beans from that pod, you're like, who knows what you're getting? Right. Because they've been cross-pollinating from other things. It also means that when you're trying to, and it's just like in, in coffee, when you're trying to get consistency out of this like massive genetic v- variety, yeah. like it's really hard to do. I know. It's like these plants are so miraculous flavor-wise. <laughs> right. And yet we try to make them sort of be like the same, which is why we do lot separation and varietal separation. Totally. Most people graft because they're worried about disease resistance and, and, and like making sure they know what they're growing. Okay. Um, but like yeah, we get beans from both, and both are really good. Okay. So, cool. um, we're 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 happy with both, and so it takes two to five years for a tree to get what we call productive. It'll start growing flowers, and um, and uh, so um, cacao cocoa flowers are like tiny. They're the si- They're like people say they're the size of your thumbnail. Maybe if I'm, my thumbnail's big, they're small. They're smaller than my, Greg's thumbnail, okay. um, and uh, and they can only be pollinated by midges or ants. They can't be pollinated by bees, yes. which is why there's no cocoa honey out there. Sadly, I think it'd be really tasty if it existed. But um, and so they're pollinated by tiny little insects. Um, after they're pollinated, uh, they grow into what's called a shirelle, which is like a tiny version of a cocoa pod. Um, and as the trees, trees are fascinating things. And as the trees growing all these pods. Based on the amount of energy it has, it can only grow so many pods. And so it will essentially cut nutrients off to a bunch of the shirelles to, in order to make sure it's growing the most of them. Um, cocoa pods grow on the, the trunk and the sort of large branches of the tree. And there's a name for it that I always forget. It's like cauliflory or something like that. I always forget the name of it. But um, it does. they don't grow at the end of branches the way people are used to seeing like oranges or apples or fruits, right? Um, They are fruits. Uh, They are a tropical fruit, um, uh, and they have a very thick pod. Um, The pods are actually really fascinating because they have five sets of two lobes on on all the pods, and then when you cut it open, the beans are in fives around it. So there's five is a very, like, important number in cocoa. So what are you looking at in terms of age of these plants? So cocoa trees can grow to be hundreds of years old. They're trees, right? Um, I have seen a 130-year-old cocoa tree. Um, If they are well taken care of and well pruned, you keep them to about, you know, three to five meters tall. Um... Uh, because that's, because you're trying to harvest fruit off of them. And so when you're harvesting fruit, that's, that's the, the easy way to do it. When you harvest the fruit, um, so the pods will grow from sort of flower beds. And so when you harvest it, there's a stem on the pod that, um, 
that will not, there's a natural break point that most fruit grow so that when you're trying to harvest the fruit, you can just, when it's ripe, you can pull it and it'll, and, and that break point will break. This does not exist in cocoa, partially because cocoa pods are so heavy. I imagine it evolved that way. They're huge. I mean, I was at a Colombian market not that long ago and I was yeah. like, it was the first time I actually got to hold one yeah. and I was so stoked. Yeah. They're just so beautiful they, and I've they, only ever seen photos, oh, I love but they're them. big and they're heavy. I yeah. mean, once, they're, once it dr was dried, it was, it was not as heavy, but I but imagine the, when it's wet, the pulp is... Yeah. yeah, they're super heavy and the husk on the outside is really heavy. Um, and so in order to not fall off the tree, this like break point, to, but this means they will get, grow, ripen, and even rot on the tree before falling off the tree. Mm. Unlike fruits where it's like, well, once it's like overripe, it just starts falling off the tree. So it means you have to cut it off the tree. This is part of the reason why there's so much labor in cocoa is like, you can't like, there's no automated harvesters. You can't go and shake trees and get the pods. You have to go and in the tree, find every single, and you have to like, and if you cut it incorrectly, you're going to damage that flower bed mm. that the pod grew from, and then you can't grow any more pods from that bed. So it's quite detail-oriented as far as harvest. Super detail-oriented. And every tree, they're not ripe because of the color. So it's like every, like, farmers know their own trees and know when to identify when the pods are ripe or not. Really? Because in, in coffee, it's 100% you're looking at color. Yeah. Well, and people look at color, but every tree has a different color. Right, yeah. So it's like you need to know the, that tree, and it's like, oh, this tree, when it turns this color, it means it's right. And that tree, when it turns that color, it means it's right. Because they can be, like, green, yellow, red. They can be all kinds of colors, yeah. right? There's even some, like, interesting, like, green, yellow that look, like, bluish to me that I think are really beautiful okay. um, that I've seen in, like, Vietnam. Uh, yeah, and they're, they, I mean, cocoa pods are beautiful. They are just intensely beautiful things to like behold um and uh and then and so then when you cut them off the tree carefully to, to not damage the tree then you have to break them open uh and to break them open typically people either do it with like a machete or like a stone they're really hard um outside husk and and it they, they evolve this way because it's like um the the pulp is very sweet the beans are very bitter the, the outside is, is very tough. So animals like dig through the outside to get to the sweet pulp, but don't eat the beans. We'll like spit out the beans or poop out the beans mm -hmm. so that that's how it, it reproduces itself. Sure. Um, and so, but so it means it's hard to like break open the outside of that pot. Um, so, so then people, someone needs to go through, break it open, pull all the beans out from the inside. Um, the beans grow on like, uh, Cortisone is a nice way to put it, but placenta is the way, is the official name. So, like, what the, what all the beans grow on. And then they're covered in this, like, white, this sweet, white, sticky pulp. And you, the first time I ever had that pulp was at Dandelion. Oh, did, really? Yeah, because oh, yeah. it's like a shake, Yeah, right? we, make, we make a smoothie out of it. Yeah, 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 which is so cool because it's just changing the idea. I think it's hard sometimes to explain. Coffee grows on a tree. And yeah. Like, oh, I'm like, it's a cherry. It's a tropical fruit. And it's, no matter how many times I say it, I don't think people quite will understand until they get to taste that. That's exactly right. I and agree. So how it was so cool the first time I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why we do it. We do. I mean, a lot of people just drink it because it's tasty too. But like, we do it because like we think it's we like having like educational slash tasty things. Yeah. Like that's what we try to do. Can you describe um, what it tastes like? Uh, every all pulp tastes different. Sure. Um. It, so uh, a lot of times it tastes like a tropical fruit, like lychee. Yeah. Um. Or. Uh, um, sometimes you get more banana-y or apple in it. Um, sometimes it's more acidic. Sometimes it can be much, much more like floral. So there, there can be a lot of like fragrant notes to, to it. Um, the, the one challenge is as soon as you open the pod, it's going to start fermenting mm. because there's so much natural yeast in the air. And so like we get our current pulp we're getting from Honduras. Um, the guys we work in Honduras also, um, uh, um, cacao direct they're called, uh, also, um, pasteurize and then um, package pulp uh, that they send to us and so that's what so that's what we're serving um, in our cafe uh, but you have to do it pretty quickly because if you don't do it quickly it's all gonna ferment and then it tastes fermenty yeah which is not terrible but like you know different yeah um so 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 um, then once you take all the beans you you ferment them fermentation can happen in like in, in Sierra Leone where we work um, with uh, with a group there, they ferment in 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 wicker baskets. Most people we work with ferment in wooden boxes. 
Um, some people can ferment in like wooden trays. Uh, as I mentioned, heap fermentation is the most prevalent fermentation in the world, which happens in a lot of West Africa where you take banana leaves, put them on the ground, put the beans in a heap, let them ferment. Um, it, it's cheap. You don't need any equipment. You know, building boxes takes time, money, and energy. Sure. Um, uh, and so, uh, and then, and fermentation typically takes about a week. Um, and we talked about like the turning of the beans you have to do to get oxygen into it. Then after the beans are fermented, they are dried. Um, drying, they're, drying can take any, an enormous variety of different amounts of time. I phrased that badly, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in, uh, in Tanzania, Coco Camille, they dry for about four days. Uh, in Wampu, um, Wampu Serpi, Honduras, where, um, uh, we get our beans in Honduras and it's next to a river, uh, they dry in 26 days. So it's like, like wild, like all over the map. And it all depends on your environment. It depends on how much sun you have. Sure. depends on how much humidity there is in the air. depends on your setup. Do you have like really nice greenhouses to keep heat in? Are you just doing direct sun? All these things impact it. So the difference between cocoa and cacao the best definition I've heard is from Darren Suka from the um, Cocoa Research Center in the University of the West Indies in Trinidad. Um, uh, CRC has one of the best cocoa programs in the world. Um, Cartier in Costa Rica has a great program too. FIA in Honduras has a great program. Um, uh, so Darren, he, he defined it as uh, um, cacao is the tree and cocoa is the product of the tree. So once you've fermented the beans, which kills the cotyledon, which means you can no longer grow a cocoa tree from it. The enzyme. Yeah, the enzyme. Um, it, it, is, uh, it goes from being cacao to cocoa. But the reality is cocoa is what people in Africa call it, and cacao is what people in Spanish-speaking countries call it. Interesting. Because, because if you say cocoa in a Spanish-speaking country, you're talking about coconuts. Um, right. or, or, or it sounds like coca, right. which is, you know, the derivative, the plant that people drive cocaine from. And so a lot of it's just the practical, like, well, you need a different word. Right. If you say cocoa, it's confusing. So people say cacao because it's less confusing. And then in Africa, people have been saying cocoa for a very long time. And so because, you know, most of the cocoa in the world comes from Africa, cocoa became the more prevalent term. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think like, one meat is healthier than the other or like one is more processed than the other and the reality is like people just kind of use the terms interchangeably interesting yeah so so it's less i think that i was concerned about using the wrong language but it sounds like there it's a mix no matter where you are and it's sort of contextual okay yeah That's you won't use the wrong language the one thing that might you might run into is if you say coco to a spanish speaker they might be like wait which cocoa are you talking about? Right. Yeah. And so that's the only, that's that's the way it can get confusing. But like you don't have to worry about using the wrong word. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious about the two sides of cocoa. I guess we could call it like cocoa versus chocolate. So there's the producing and export side, and then very similar to coffee, the consumer facing side is a very different environment. Can you sort of like speak to this dichotomy? So in the chocolate industry, we have a wide variety of customers who are going to buy our product. Right, and so what that means is, like for instance, we uh, we make we work with thirteen different uh, origins organizations groups right now across twelve different countries, um, and part of the reason we do that is everyone has different tastes, and so we try to make a wide variety of bars to highlight the individual sort of nuances of different beans from all over the world, talk about beans all over the world, really help connect people to kind of like the like the the wide world that is that is cocoa. And so we think of ourselves as kind of this connector between the two. In many ways, the way we, we put it is like, we'll get really good cocoa beans and then our job is to bring the best flavor out of them and like not mess them up. Sure. You know, we're not adding other flavors. We're not, you know, making it milk chocolate. Our goal is like, get great cocoa beans and don't mess them up and then people can eat great chocolate. But we have a massive potential customer base. And we have access to resources to reach that massive potential customer base. Right. We have online stores and we have cafes that people can come into and we can talk to them, etc. In the cocoa industry, it's like you're selling to a really narrow set of people. And so I think there's a lot of, um, it changes the dynamic completely because it's kind of like you can't just try things out and it's like, oh, well, those guys don't like it. I guess the next guy will like it, which you can kind of do. When you're selling to a wide variety of customers, you can try things out really easily. Most of the people we're buying from have three customers, 
five customers. And so every one of those customers ends up being a very sort of like uh, specific and important relationship to work with. This was highlighted, I was just in Amsterdam this week um, at a conference called Chocoa. Two days, there are booths for cocoa producers um, to talk to chocolate makers, and two days, there are booths for chocolate makers to talk to sort of the general public. It's sure. a festival. And it was so fascinating, the difference between the booths, because the cocoa producers are like, if we talk to one person who's going to buy a container of beans, this whole trip is worth it. Right. Whereas for the chocolate makers, you're just like, you're talking to like hundreds, actually thousands of sure. people who are coming through selling one bar at a time. Like, it's just a totally different mindset yeah. in terms of how you build relationships and how you work with your customer base. What size is the typical farm that you're working with? Because when you're saying you, they may have three customers, is that because of their size or is that because there's only so many companies that purchase? Because they're sort of dominant yeah. importers, right? That there's not that many in the U.S. and then there's a few people that are doing this direct. So is it because of the size of the farm or is it because of the lack of like small buyers? It, it, it's both. Okay. Yeah, it's it's absolutely both. And what you just described is, is dead on. That there's like, in the U.S., um, so there's like Meridian Cacao, Uncommon Cacao, uh, Atlantic, um, and a couple other sort of importers who are going to, who are, who import a wide variety. And the, and even though there's like hundreds of chocolate makers in the U.S., most of them, and so I, uh, ch chocolate alchemy is where a lot of people will buy like small quantities of beans. Chocolate alchemy gets his beans from all of the people I just talked about. Right. Right. And so, um, and so there's, there's a small number of importers and then there's, then there's, there are larger chocolate makers who will import their own beans. We do both. We basically do whatever the producer we work with wants to do. So we're just, so like a great example is Camino Verde, these amazing beans we get um, from uh, Vicente Norero in, um, he's right outside Guayaquil, Ecuador. Um, he, he likes cocoa, but he doesn't want to be a salesperson. So he basically sells all of his beans to Meridian Cacao and Meridian sells them to us, et cetera, et cetera. So like, while technically we are not buying directly from him, the reason we're not is he doesn't want to be in the business of doing like, of, you know, sp like negotiating this specific thing in here and like getting that container done. He wants to just be able to like pump out containers sure. that, that, that can come into the U.S. and then it gets just redistributing the U.S. Whereas there are other people that we work with, um, uh, such as My Mountain Cacao in Belize, where, you know, we, we do the import directly of the container that they export. Um, rather than having anybody else in the middle because we have a direct relationship with them. You know, it means that uh, that we can talk through any of the details we need to talk through. This is the, the way they want to operate. And so what we basically do is we talk to all the people we work with and we're just kind of like, what do you want us to do? If you want us to go through someone else, we go through someone else. If you want us to import directly, we have the skills to do any of the above. It just comes down to like, what is easy, what is making their life easier? Sure. Because I think um, the important thing is like, there are people who talk about going direct as, as like, as dogma, as like, you have to always buy directly. But like, if that's not what's in the best interest of the person you're buying from, then like, why would you be doing it? Like, if the reason you're doing it is to, is to, to best service the producers you're working with, then you should ask them how, to, like, this is the same issue I have with certifications. It's like certifications are this one size fits all. And like, like the thing we should just be doing is like building relationships, talking to people and finding out what they actually want and need and then doing that yeah. instead of imposing, well, this is my view of the world. This is what we think will work. And therefore we're going to tell you the way you should work with us. It, you know, let's talk about farmers. What does that landscape look like? And so in Coca, there's kind of three main models. And the biggest model in the world is smallholder farmers who grow ferment, grow, harvest, ferment, and dry their own cocoa, and then sell it to somebody who sells it to somebody who sells it to somebody, right? You know, and so this is Ivory Coast in Ghana, like massive co-ops, uh, um, and Ivory Coast and Ghana together are 60 some odd percent of the cocoa in the world. Right. Right. And so it's like what Ivory Coast and Ghana do is what the world does right. to some degree. And you're saying they, they control their own processing, typically. Every farmer does their own processing. Wow. Typically. That's incredible. That's actually really surprising because of the volume. It's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also an enormous amount of work. Yes, so this so is work. so this is what you're talking about when you're talking about the amount of money people are getting at Farmgate. So in Ivory Coast, farmers get twelve hundred dollars per ton Farmgate. They have grown the cocoa, harvested it, fermented and dried it, and so fermentation and drying is like at minimum a two week process. Yep, so you're talking like even after they've done all this work, six months of growing from flower to pod, two you know harvesting, two weeks of fermentation and drying. 
they're getting $1,200 a ton or $1.20 per kilogram of this product that they've just made. Okay, and so $1.20 a kilo is basically a little over 50 cents a pound. It's like 54 cents a pound. It's like shockingly low. Um, and But it's also part of the reason it, that the quality tends to be somewhat lower is because when everyone's doing their own, it's kind of like if you had to do every single part of making a meal, like your meal's not going to be as good as like, well, there's somebody else who's really good at growing, you know, cucumbers for the salad. Yeah. And, you know, and this other person like is great at making vinegar. And so like you're, you know, the, the dressing on your salad is, is like drawing on the expertise of all these other people. Whereas like if one person's doing all of it, it's like, well, they're harvesting and they can't turn the cocoa beans when they need to turn them because that's when they have to be in the field harvesting their cocoa. And so they turn them when they can, which means that, you know, the, like there's all these little details you need to do in fermentation to get the quality really good. Um, and so this comes, so this is the second model. So the first model is smallholder farmers. This is most of them. The second model is plantations or estates. And this is somebody owns a lot more land and just, uh, for the sake of scale, smallholder farmers, uh, it's anywhere from two acres of land to 10 acres of land. Um, uh, and so, but that's the general scale. And that two to 10 acres is typically farm as well as like food you're growing to eat. Right, yeah, they're well. subsistence, subsistence farmers. Exactly, subsistence farmers. Um, so, so then there's single estates. Now, single estates are uh, somebody who has more money, therefore more land. Now, and in single estates, you're, typically they're employing people rather than people own their own land. Um, now, I think it's really funny because as an American, you hear plantation and you think, like, evil, bad, like, taking advantage of workers. The reality is a lot of these plantations, like... In Brazil, there's plantations all over the place where people are, like, get to live, like, are living on the plantation. Mm -hmm. There's schools there. They're safe. They're, you know, they're getting paid really well. Um, I was, I was, last year I was at a plantation in Brazil where somebody was saying, like, the person who runs their fermentary is richer than the guy who actually owns the plantation. Because, because, well, he's like, because the guy, like, lives here, he saves up his money and he buys houses in Rio, and is renting those out. And so he's a landlord of like, you know, tons of real estate out there. And like, and he, like, he runs the fermentary, et cetera. So it's, I think. He, and that's because he lives on the property for free, right? Because that exactly. happens in coffee as well. Exactly. And the first time I saw that, it was like, it was actually in Tanzania. Right. And it was a little concerning because they had this like little plot of land, land, they yeah. had like chickens and things. Yeah. And I didn't really know how to interpret someone living on a property. Exactly. And I didn't know how to really. I had to ask a lot of questions, basically. Agreed. Me yeah. too. And there's a power dynamic to living on someone else's property. Yes. Certainly. Yes. And like, and I think that's not to be that's not to be dismissed. But it's I, I think as an American, like plantation just sounds like an evil word. And I think well, it was an evil word. It, and it well, evil there's word a reason. Yeah, yeah, there's a reason it was an evil word. But like, I think that's one of those like biases that like I have to get over, where it's like, okay, plantations don't work. Like labor laws in Brazil are super strict. And like you, like it's like it's very. I mean, even if somebody wanted to take advantage of their workers, it would be very, very difficult for them to do so. Interesting. I um, think I don't. That surprises me. Yeah, me too. Like, and this is the thing. Like, these are the things that like. There's all these things that you're like, oh, that's not how I imagined things would work at all. Um. Uh. And and so, but so so single estates, um, single estates slash plantations are kind of this model. And like the main difference between single estate, um, and a smallholder farmer clearly is like. Well, now that you have lots of land, you can pay people to specialize. And people who are doing specialization tend to do a better job because they can focus on something instead of having to do all of the above. I, I know that everyone knows this, but like, yeah. I think it's important to say. And so like their quality gets better. And if their quality gets better, then they can build a brand for their estate and they can export and, and, and brand just themselves and they can get more money out of it. And so like in some ways, th there's this this is how when people talk about like the rich get richer this is kind of how it, it works it's like y you can do a better job with this and in doing a better job you can get paid more money and getting paid more money you can put that money back in your farm and so there's like a snowball effect yeah this is not to say buying from a single state or a plantation is a bad thing we buy from a number of them because they do a great job they pay their workers really well they're like they're also the trendsetters they're the people who have i i often equate money to ability to take risk Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You, 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 like, if you can't, 
If if you're going to try this new method of fermentation and no one's going to buy it, it means you get no money. And if you don't have money, if you don't have excess money, it means you don't eat or you don't your kids don't go to school or whatever it is. Whereas if you have excess money, you can try this thing and if it goes well, you you see the upside and if it goes badly, well, like you try something else. Um and so the fact that there are people with more money, the, these are the people who are able to take risks to pave the way for other people to be like, all right, you guys put your money in, you took all the risks, and now we can benefit from this new knowledge. Um, I think uh, Bertil Atkinson's plantation in Madagascar is a great example of this. Like his beans don't taste like cocoa. They're fruity, they're acidic, um, they're incredible. They're, they're fantastic. Um, but like the, it was only because he could take this risk of trying to sell these beans that don't taste like cocoa that now other people are like, wait a minute, there's a market for like unique and interesting tasting beans. Because if no one was able to sort of put themselves out there and be like, I'm going to put a stake in the ground and say all beans don't have to taste like cocoa. Yeah. Um, and so, and so that's, for me, that's one of the great things about like single estates and plantations is they can pave the way and they can, they can build amazing fermentaries to, to, and, and when it doesn't go well, rebuild the fermentary. Sure to show other people what a good fermentary can be like. Um, and then the third model, and I think this is very common in coffee, not as common in cocoa, is centralized processing facilities. Right. And so these are businesses or co-ops that are buying what we refer to as wet beans. I think in coffee it's cherry. Mm -hmm. um, so buying wet beans, which is like the pods are harvested, the, the beans come out of the pod, um, still with a pulp on it, and then they ferment and dry those beans centrally um, and so it's kind of the best of both worlds where you're working with smallholder farmers, but there are people who are specialized so that the fermentation and drying, which in cocoa, the fermentation and drying is one of the major drivers of flavor. Yeah, I was going to ask what is in terms of processing the most important and maybe even the smallest thing that they can do in order to impact quality. Paying attention to that process is the difference between amazing cocoa beans and terrible cocoa beans. You can take literally the same genetics and if you ferment them poorly, they're going to be terrible. And, and, or if you ferment them in an amazing way, they can be amazing. Let's turn to quality. So dandelion is known for their quality in large part because you have a wide range of flavors because of your sourcing and also that you don't add anything other than sugar. I'm curious about quality assessment of cocoa. What does that look like? I think one of the things the coffee industry has done really well is because there's a scoring protocol, you can say like, if this coffee is an 87, of course you're going to be paying X amount of money yeah, for it. I can't tell you how valuable it is to be globally calibrated, like to be, to be able to have exporters and farmers even knowing not only what an 87 out of 100 is, but also knowing the rejection points. It just sets an expectation for everyone. If the whole chain is using the same scoring system, I mean, it's grounded in a concrete assessment that can then be taught. That's exactly. And, 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 and that doesn't exist in cocoa at all. How close are they to doing mm. that? Um, there's, there, there are probably three or four different groups trying to come up with something. Um, but like, I mean, the challenge is like, if we're being totally honest about it, the challenge is as soon as there is a, a fixed scale that everyone can agree on, that everyone can communicate and that everyone says, this means that you need to pay more for your cocoa it means everyone has to start paying more for cocoa. Right. Or at least there's, there, should, there will be an expectation that everyone's paying more for cocoa. And so there's an enormous number of, uh, like every time this conversation comes up and people talk about quality, and then somebody will say, and if the quality's really good, then like they can make more money, there's always somebody from a larger chocolate maker that says, whoa, 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 whoa. quality and price aren't correlated. Which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Why would they? Why would they think that? Because it's not in the cocoa industry. Right. Quality and price—they're vaguely core. I mean, like, but the commodity version is like ninety-nine point nine percent of the cocoa out there. Right. Right. And so this is one of the big differences between coffee and cocoa. Is so much of coffee has started to decouple from that. Whereas, like, even the people who are like, I—that's not true. It's not ninety-nine point nine. It's probably ninety-nine percent. You know, um, it's 4.8 million tons of cocoa produced worldwide last year, right? So let's round it to 5 million tons. And so I would say 50,000 tons is probably how much was bought, like decoupled from, not, not decoupled from the market. That's how much was bought with sort of offsets, not strictly dictated by what the market says 
that you should do. Right. Right. So that's people who are paying, that's people like us, but you know, last year we bought 125 tons of cocoa. We're like, we are a rounding error right. on, um, you know, um, but, but there are people like Valrona who pay, who, who definitely pay more money for their cocoa. At what stage would you be evaluating in terms of if this was going about to take off and you were saying, okay, we're going to create yeah. a scoring system. We have, we're starting on a lexicon. Right. This is going to be a global calibration and we're going to like, the specialty end of, of cocoa is going to start doing this because it just allows for calibration and traceability yeah. at least yep. for, in terms of price and where, where in that stage of processing would you evaluate? Would you um, be roasting it on the ground? Well, so the nice thing about cocoa, I've talked about all of the ways that cocoa is not as good as coffee. One of the nice things that cocoa has is you can evaluate unroasted beans, which is nice because it means like, I didn't bring it with me, but I have a kit that is like a $30 camping coffee grinder mm -hmm. and like, you know, a $2 nutcracker uh, and a, you know, $2, you know, eighth of a teaspoon. And you can basically do a pretty solid evaluation now, that, the evaluation you do is not going to be precise, but you'll be able to get a general sense of, like, is this, is this specialty or not from, like, a $40 kit yeah. that doesn't need electricity. And how, what are you looking um, for when you're about So the main thing you're looking for is, well, and so, so that's the, like, that's the very first pass of, like, is this, does this have musty flavors? Is it over-fermented? You know, is there lactic acid in it? So you're looking for defects in the first you're round. You're basically, in the first round, you're looking for defects. Okay. And you're like, if this is, if this is defect-free, and maybe when you're looking for the defects, you're like, oh, there's something kind of interesting in here. Um, then the second round you go through is where you, like, roast it. In our case, we roast it and then turn it into chocolate. Right. Because we just do two-ingredient chocolate, just cocoa beans and sugar. Sure. Um... Uh, when we're doing the evaluation, we're like, well, we might as well do the evaluation by adding sugar because like we're going to add sugar eventually. A lot of people do liquor. If you're making milk chocolate, you want to evaluate liquor because you want to evaluate all the components you're going to put into the bar. And is liquor mouthfeel? Um, liquor is just, liquor is taking cocoa beans and grinding them up. Okay. That's when people, oh, sorry. I should have said that. When people refer to liquor, has, uh, it has nothing to do with anything alcoholic. Right. Um, liquor is just uh, roasted, roasted cocoa beans. Uh, that are cracked and winnowed, husk is removed, and then they're ground up into a paste. So cocoa beans are half fat. Um, unlike coffee, cocoa beans have a lot of fat to them. And so much in the same way with a peanut, if you grind up a cocoa bean, you get a paste mm. as opposed to a powder. Sure. Um, and, so, and so this is why, for instance, that you can just eat that without having to like cup it. You know, it's sort of like with coffee, to my knowledge, like no one, no one is tasting green coffee. Um, and then even once you roast coffee, you have to grind it and you have to cup it with water rather than tasting the, the coffee directly. In cocoa, it's actually pretty nice that like you can taste unroasted beans. They're edible. Um, uh, like the equivalent of a green bean in cocoa is something you can consume. Now, there's a whole big debate because some people are like, oh, but it's filthy. Like, you know, people dry it on the road, et cetera, et cetera. And I would argue if, if our industry is at such a point that you don't feel like you can consume the thing because it's so filthy, then like, you, you, like we should be really reevaluating the way all of this works. Right, like exactly. it's still food, right? You know, and so, and the reality is as many times as I hear people saying like, oh, Coke is filthy, it's dried on the road. Like most of it isn't. Like most of it, people actually take care in what they're doing. Sure. And like, it doesn't mean it doesn't get moldy and it doesn't mean that people don't, you know, it doesn't get E. coli or something accidentally. But, you know, I, I would say like, I, we we will consume raw cocoa a lot, and I'm not encouraging everyone in the world to do it, but we consume raw cocoa a lot, and the people we work with consume raw cocoa a lot, and part of the reason we work with the people we work with is, like, if you're willing to consume your own cocoa, it means, like, you take care and attention, and, like, you know, it's food, it's not a thing that you're just trying to sell, sure. um, and that's part of, one of, there's, there's a very strong correlation between people who will taste their own cocoa and 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 flavor and quality of that cocoa because they can tell if something's off 
is it, could they taste at a certain point and then make decisions based on that for, ne for next year? Or can you, is there a point at which they can change something in order to increase it on the farm? A absolutely. So, so that, that's the nice thing is that the way fermentation and drying, it, like you don't have to wait a whole cycle. It's like you can tune your ferments as they're going along cool. and people do it all the time yeah. where they're like, oh, this season, like there's been less fruit in, in it. And so like there's not enough sugar. And so maybe we shouldn't drain it as much or there's more sugar. And so we need to drain it more or, you know, like so people can like tune what's going on while it's happening. Yeah. Um, which is great. And that's one of the like and again, that's one of the great things about cocoa is like you can go from terrible tasting cocoa to great tasting cocoa in a season if you have now sometimes it means you have to build facilities like drying like appropriate drying racks or fermentation boxes etc and so it'll take a little longer but like it like the fermentation and drying is a big part of the flavor is a huge part of the flavor and so it doesn't mean like you don't have to like get new genetics and plant new stuff get new land like all these things where you know or like my understanding at least in coffee for instance the altitude you're at makes a massive difference huge right huge in cocoa at least as of now, there's no correlation between altitude. And really? Yeah. Interesting. Now, maybe there is, and it's just like nobody in Cocoa. Keep in mind, it's only the last, like, what, 10 years that anyone's been, like... Even like, paying attention. Right? Yeah, paying attention to... Like, what most people have been really focused on in Cocoa is, like, productivity and disease resistance. Right. And flavor has always taken, like, a third seat. It's not a back seat. It's in the trunk, right? You know, and so, like... If, if, and with no one paying attention, that's why we don't have scoring protocols and all these things that we need in order to make an industry that cares about flavor. Like when people say quality in, in cocoa, almost always what they're talking about is like, are there a lot of rocks? Are there, you know, is there placenta, which is like the stem that the cocoa grows on? You know, is there, is there non-cocoa bean material in there? Are there broken beans? Are there moldy beans? When people say quality a good portion of the time, they're not even talking about the flavor and quality are like two separate things. They're referring so, to defects. They're defect referring to defect free or relatively exactly, defect free. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like when someone says high quality, what they mean is not a lot of defects yeah. instead of, and like, and so I think we just have to change the conversation. Sure. And like I was at this, uh, like I was talking to a lot of cocoa producers um, last, last week. And I was saying that like, I feel like I'm a, I'm a cocoa industry ally is what I'm trying to be because like I'm a chocolate maker. I don't go cocoa. And so the best I can do is like, Try to do what I can to help. Like, you know, and so when you're talking about things like protocols for um, tasting, like, that's something I can help with because, like, I'm on one end of that and they're on the other end. And we need to have a way that we can communicate clearly and succinctly about, like, the you know, the flavor of something and the quality of something, whether it's good or bad. But, like, there's a lot of things that, like, the best I can do is, like, is be a good cheerleader, like, provide information, buy cocoa at a really good price. You know, I mean, the so our the our average price that we buy cocoa for is uh, approximately sixty five hundred dollars a ton. The world market price right now is like twenty two hundred dollars a ton. So almost three um, times. So almost three times, and I'm not saying that because I think everyone should be like, wow, those guys are doing the great thing. It's it's what we talked about earlier. We're just not doing like I feel like we're doing the minimum. Like we are paying a price that like that that like is is hopefully a sustainable price for cocoa. But, it, and if it's not, we have to pay more. Right. But, but to everybody who talks about like, well, you can't possibly pay that much money. It's like, I feel like you can do math really easily on this. Yeah. So let's take like a, uh, let's call it a, uh, a, a Schmershies bar. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and like, and I'm not, this is, again, I'm not trying to like, I understand the way the large scale industry works is complex. I understand the way large companies work. I've worked in large companies. Like it, you can't oversimplify the stuff, but, uh, Hershey bar have about 10% cocoa, right? They have to by law to be called chocolate. Um, and so, uh, and so 10% cocoa, um, the, and so let's, let's say a Hershey's bar is just to make the math really easy. Let's say it's a 50 gram bar. I don't actually know how much, and yes, I'm going to work in metric because like the world works in metric, even though we live in the U S let's um, do it. All right, sweet. We're I'm metric people, it. but okay. So a Hershey bar, so 10%, let's say it's a 50 gram bar. Let's say that 50 gram bar costs, I think these days they're like $2, mm -hmm. right? So it's 50 grams. 10% of that is five grams. So five grams of cocoa. The world market price, again, it's probably, it's right now it's like 2,200. I don't follow it because we don't like buy based on them. But so let's call it just, let's do a round. Let's round it to 2,000 to make the math easier because I'm not that good with math in my head. So like five grams of cocoa at 
$2 a kilogram, which is point, point 0.2 cents a gram, right? I did that math mm-hmm. correctly, like three decimal places. 0.2 cents a gram. Five grams of cocoa in it. That's one cent worth of cocoa in that bar at commodity price. So wild. So let's say you doubled the price you were paying. That would be two cents. Two cents per bar. Per bar. And you're getting a dollar per bar. Or two dollars per bar. Yeah. Like, that's why I'm saying, like, I, like, like, there's just the part of me that's kind of like, I understand the way markets work and I, you know, but like the reality is every time a large producer talks about, Hey, it's like the market, what can I do? The rea- the answer is like, I mean, we, we, we pay more money. There's very few people who, when you say, I'll pay you more money for this, will say, no, please don't. Yeah. Um, and like, and like, I'll talk to traders and traders like, oh, but it'll throw the whole market out of whack. Cause like, let's say one like let's say one um, cacao buyer starts like buying all the cocoa at twice the price. Then the market, then like everyone starts growing cocoa and then there's way too much cocoa and then the price crashes. And like, while I understand that, that that is a short term impact that someone paying more temporarily would have, you can't tell me that markets don't go up. Like, look at commodity yeah. prices of everything in the world. Totally. Cocoa is one of the very few that if you look at it from 50 years ago and you look at it today, 50 years ago, it was like 1800 And yeah. that's not in- accounted for inflation. We just had a point last year where the commodity coffee price was lower than it was. Yes. In like the 30s. Exactly. And you look at everything else. I mean, just look at how like, much a haircut costs. It used, exactly. to, be a, it used to be a quarter. Yeah. Right. You know, to get your hair cut or even like yep. a dime. Yep. And now you're paying like $150 sometimes in like big cities. And that kind of inflation, for some reason, people can understand. But one thing that's issue with coffee is that it's a daily consumption. Exactly. And for a daily ritual, it's hard. But yeah. for chocolate, it's something that people don't eat every day. So do you think that it's a little bit more lenient? I mean, how much are your bars retail? Well, so our bars retail from anywhere from uh, $8.50 to $13. I don't think that that's bad bars. at all. I mean, think about a bottle of wine or something that, like that. Totally. Somebody, I was just, I was just last, at this conference I was at last week, somebody was like, literally there are people holding a, you know, this was in Europe, a three euro bottle of water, hemming and hawing about whether they'll pay six euros for a bar of chocolate. You're like, that's water. Like you literally could have gotten it out of the tap. And you paid three euros for that bottle, but this like bar of chocolate that has had multiple people in the value chain and all these kind of things, like six euros too much for that. And like, exactly. It's all about like what people are used to paying. I feel like one of the biggest challenges that cocoa has is that like cocoa is grown and cocoa and coffee both are grown in developing countries and processed in, you know, America, Europe, etc. Like, for lack of a better way to put it, like, which somebody said recently, and I, I think that's probably the best way, the easiest way to put it, like, cocoa is grown by black and brown people and processed by white people. That like, exact phrase was said to me at a trading house, and yeah. it horrified me. They said, brown and black hands pick beans, white hands trade beans, and I wanted to crawl into a hole and die because I didn't want to be part of that system, but when we can try to work, I learned those skills, and then I went to a company that actually valued the power dynamics that I was, I so feared and decided to like reevaluate that and flip it on its head. And that's exactly, that's exactly how I feel. Like you, we can't run away from it. It's true. Like, and, and like, I think like a lot of people don't talk about it as much because like there is a massive power dynamic, a massive power imbalance, I should say, between the people who are buying the final product and the people who are growing the product. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting about wine. Wine is grown by white people, yeah. right? And so, like, if you look at the amount of money that that the grape growers get versus the amount of money the wine is sold for, there's a lot more equity in it, and it's because it's grown in now. And you can argue, well, cost of living, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but their land increases in value as I mean, they can sell on the property. They can, I mean, they have a location to be able to display and get people to understand sort of the work that's done. But even that, I mean, I went in Napa and they were talking about, oh, we have these like mechanical harvesters. Yeah. And I, in my mind, like in, in Brazil, it's very common to have that, but we pay people to, to do the individual picking and sorting because the quality is higher. Yeah. And yet they're, t- they're like sort of boasting about this, like 
technology that they're using and yet like there's so much more work that goes into coffee and it's the import i mean the customs yep. that yep. every single person yep. in the supply chain same with cocoa and yet like people do not want to pay for it yeah. and i don't understand really where the disconnect is and it's maybe it's because they don't see it do I, you think I, I, that's exactly what i think it is i think it's i think it's marketing i think it's like people don't see it and i think and i think like the chocolate industry is 100% complicit in this because like the last 150 years of the chocolate industry has been like people not talking about cocoa beans. Yeah. Like cocoa beans are this sort of like, I mean like the number of people who still don't know that chocolate comes from cocoa beans is pretty large. Like how many people know, don't know that wine comes from grapes, right? You know, it, like not very, I would assume not very many. I don't know the statistics. Yeah. Um, right. And so like, and so I think like one of the things that happened was because it was this sort of, and the reality is it came from colonies. Yeah. Right? So it's like, this was a, this was something coming from colonies that, that so essentially free or free-ish, right? That, that was coming from colonies and then processed. So like, not surprisingly, the people who were doing, the people who were work, working and living in the colonies who were like growing the product were not the people who were talked about. No. It was the chocolate maker. It was the, the person in Europe because at this point it really was mostly Europe. Like it was a person in Europe who was like doing that final processing, and you did, like you didn't really talk about supply chain. It, like supply chain wasn't a thing. Yeah, because it was really predatory. Well, and, like yeah, and you because... were doing an occupation. It's funny. There's this um, guy's name is Sidney W. Mintz, and he has um, a really interesting book. He has he has many. He's a scholar, but he talks about sort of the colonies allowing for this taste to be developed. And so as the sugar intake and as the like coffee and tea of these colonies, especially in the English colonies, then there was all of a sudden a dependence. People were addicted to yeah, sugar. They were, they were disconnected from the labor force, right. but there was an incentive to keep these colonies. And so there is an incentive to be able to have control. And that's why we call it neo-colonial control, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Because it's a, it's not occupation. It's indirect power of purchasing right. and customer preferences. Yep. And like, there's so many interests in keeping that because yep. we're used to having it cheap. Yeah. And like what happens in terms of accessibility, it's like, you know, like our generation has student debt. We have like more debt than anyone. We sort of had the recession, all these yep. things. We've been sort of handed the short end of the stick. And yet we have this huge ethos that we want to purchase ethically. Yeah. And yet the accessibility aspect is so hard. And it's like, how do you take on these big industries? I guess it's like one community at a time. Right? Yeah. Well, and, 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 and I think part of it is, is. Like, one of the things we can do, again, as an ally of the cacao industry, cocoa industry, one of the things we can do is, like, n not pretend the cocoa industry doesn't exist. Yeah. Like, we talk on our bar about, like, who who made these beans? I think this is one of the challenges where it's, like, so you, you have all these people trying to do, quote-unquote, the right thing for what, like, essentially white people are trying to tell them is the right thing to do. Even though we have zero concept. And when I say we, like, I've been to 29 cocoa-growing countries. I spent the last, like, eight years, like, half of my time in cocoa-growing countries. I've spent a lot of time in cocoa-growing countries. And I would argue I have very little concept of how things really work. Yeah. Uh, most of what I know is what people tell me. And, like, you know, and, like, the reality is, like, people, like, even the people I trust and who really trust me, who are very blunt with me, still are trying to, like you know, I'm their customer, right? Like, and, and so like, it's like, it, like, even after like years of developing relationships with people, like, there's still a power dynamic. Yeah. And like, I have to always, always, always be aware of that power dynamic. And like, it, it like, it was, um, I went to Ecuador last year with some of the people from Dandelion. And like, one of the first things I said is like, keep in mind, like the people we're visiting, like I'm friends with them. I know them well. I like them. We are still their customer. And if you ask for something, they're going to try to do it because they don't want to disappoint you. Right. And so, like, and it was really funny. And, and to, to their credit, the people I brought from Dandelion were awesome about it until, like, literally the very final day. One person basically was, like, uh, like uh, Vicente was driving us back. Um, and someone was like, oh, hey, I was looking for some souvenirs. Like, where's a good place to get souvenirs? And he was like, oh, I can take you over to this great market. And I was like, oh, you, you, you like, you broke the cardinal rule. Like, uh. you, like, don't ask for stuff because if you ask for stuff, they're going to want to give it because like, we're their customers. Right. Totally. Right. And like, and so like that, and that paradigm never goes away and can't go away. Like as much as you try to, to do it, because like, if we're the people with the money and we're giving them money, it's like, like, 
they're, they're kind of beholden to us. And so like the best we can do is be really aware of it and not lord it over people and do our best to, to, to like be careful about it. But like we can't pretend it doesn't exist. It definitely exists. And if you pretend it doesn't exist, then you're going to, then, then you're going to stumble all over the place because you're just sort of like, well, you know, like you're, you're going to, you're going to think you're being treated as an equal. Where yeah. do you think the future of cacao is going? Well, I, so where I hope the future of cacao is going is more and more and more transparency. And, um, and, and transparency means that like, you know, someone in Ghana doesn't have to be afraid to say their kid is collecting water because they think someone in the United States is going to think that's child labor. Like, so real transparency in terms of like people understand the amount of work that goes into it. it there has to be more money spent on cocoa. There has to be like, it's it like it is unreasonable how little money people spend on cocoa. How um, much should a chocolate bar be if, cause I have a number for coffee. Yeah. So for one bar, the size that like you brought me. Yeah. For true sustainable growth and compensation, right. regardless of who is in the middle for supply chain, yeah, how much should it be to the end consumer if it's all done properly in terms of supply chain? Well, a lot of so so in our chocolate bars, there's only about so even we're paying like six thousand five hundred dollars a ton. Right. There's only about like that's like forty five cents worth of cocoa in what is an eight dollar and fifty cent bar. The, the vast majority of our price is our labor in the middle of San Francisco. Right. And so, like, I actually don't even think the price of chocolate bars even has to go up that much. I think it's just that, like, I, I think what it comes down to is, like, the, the money has to be distributed appropriately that, that's in it. And I, and I do think part of it is when people are, like, that being said, I, so I think it's less about, like, people have to pay more. And I think it's more about like, people have to be more aware of what goes into the bar of chocolate that they're eating. Because the other problem is like, a lot of people will eat a chocolate bar. And it, as I said, like, it's mostly not cocoa. It's mostly like sugar and milk powder and all these other things. Um, and so like, if you're eating like a chocolate bar that actually has a lot of cocoa in it. Um, yeah, they're not cheap. Like, I, I imagine they're gonna, they're gonna, I think it's gonna be like wine. Like there's still $2 bottles of wine. Right. There's going to be $10 bottles of wine and $20 bottle of wine, but there's also thousands of dollars of bottle of wine. And I'm hoping that's what happens to chocolate is that like you can buy a $10 bar and it's great and everyone's paid fairly. You can also buy a $50 bar and like, and that goes and helps to support something even more awesome and better, et cetera. And then like, you know, and like the price can just sort of go up from there and people realize that it's, like in in much the same way that um we like we pay the cocoa producers what they ask us to pay we don't negotiate right they're they're like this is how much i want for my beans and we say yes because the reality is we're not price sensitive we tell them we're not trying to negotiate we're not trying to build a power dynamic we don't we literally the first thing we say is like we're not price sensitive tell us the price you need yeah um and uh and like now it might mean that like so for some cocoa, if it's really expensive, we, we would buy less of it because like, you know, I mean like the difference between $6,500 and $7,500 is not that much. The difference between $6,500 and $1,200 or sorry, $12,000 is a lot. And so then it's like, okay, well maybe we actually can't use it for some of the products, etc. Or like, you know, we, we buy less of it. Um, but like, we don't do that. Like our customers don't do that. You know, like our customers don't come into Dandelion and say like, well, the world market price right now is like $2 for a chocolate bar. So I'm going to give you $2 plus a premium because you have better quality. So I'm going to give you $2.20. How's that sound? Yeah. Right? Like yeah. no one does that. So like that's how I want the world to treat cocoa producers. I love it. Thanks again to Greg for stopping by the studio and taking the time to chat. You can find everything that Greg and the team are up to at dandeliончоколад.com. And stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the cultural and musical history of the region and product discussed in the episode. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe and leave us a review. We're a small group of radical women trying to make it happen, and your support means so much. Hello, everyone. This is Danielle Maggio delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. 
For today's segment, I want to talk about one of my favorite genres of music, and that's highlife music of West Africa. So throughout this segment, you'll be hearing the voice of my dear friend and colleague, Samuel Okaboateng, who is a composer and musician from Ghana, whose music and research is deeply rooted in high life. So let's get into it. High life music is a powerful case study of acculturation. Acculturation is the process of cultural change that results when different cultures interact. In this case, we're talking about the impact of the West, namely African-American music, on West Africa. However, acculturation goes both ways. Ethnomusicologist John Collins coined the term musical feedback cycle to describe the process and outcome of African-American music being brought back over to Africa. In essence, the musical feedback cycle is a model to think about the flow of indigenous West African music that was transplanted to the Americas, then transformed by the African-American experience, and then brought back to West Africa in the 20th century. Perhaps no other musical genre exemplifies the idea of a musical feedback cycle as clearly as high life music. The first traces of what we now identify as high life, although it wouldn't be called by that name for many years to come, originated from the cross-pollination of coastal trade and colonialism in West Africa. By the early 1900s, for instance, the music you know, had already begun to, to, to form. And mostly it happened as a result of, you know, local Ghanaian musicians combining their traditional and recreational music with the music they came in contact with when they, when they met sailors, when they met, you know, uh, people who were in Ghana to do commerce, um, when they met um, people who worked on ships. West Africans would bring their indigenous instruments, hang out on the coast, and come in contact with these foreign sailors. And these sailors would bring their easily portable Western instruments that were available on their ships, such as the accordion and the banjo, but most influential was the guitar. And so they would sing and play um, in, in places like palm wine bars, in, you know, under the moonlight when people were telling stories. Um, in fact, the name palm wine guitar gets it gets the name from musicians going to palm wine bars and playing, you know, to entertain people who are drinking. And it's one of the reasons why people didn't want their children playing music because it was always associated with drunkenness and debauchery and that kind of thing. Palm wine music soon shifted to its next iteration in the late 19th century. This shift developed out of the presence of military brass bands associated with the European forts that were found all along the West African coast. Europeans used local musicians to play military marches, introducing brass instruments to West Africans for the very first time. And so musicians got, you know, the chance to experiment with trumpets, uh, trombones and that kind of thing. West Africans were inspired to make their own version of brass band music, and they did this by transforming the European march time into a syncopated African beat. They were playing brass instruments, but they were playing brass instruments and playing their own music, so it influenced a lot of the music that Ghanaians began to make, especially those who were playing brass band, in the sense that they also started playing local music um, with, with their own brass instruments that they had. This layering of brass instruments on top of the palm wine music helped to push the sound of modern highlight forward. But it would take another process of acculturation to complete the musical feedback cycle. Before and during World War II, British and American troops were stationed in West Africa. And as is the case throughout history, when soldiers weren't fighting, they wanted to drink, dance, and socialize. The Western dance music of that era was made up of jazz, swing, big band, and R&B music. And it really was these forms of rhythm and blues and swing and jazz and jump perfected by African Americans that resulted in the modern form of high life as we know it today. West African bands mimicked the swing, jump, and R&B bands of America, forming tight-knit ensembles in matching suits with slick band names. 
How High Life got its name is a story of inclusion and exclusion. And then dance orchestras were also like, you know, these elite dance groups or performance groups, groups that were set up to entertain colonial officers and their visitors and when they had parties and when they had balls and soirees and they played in venues that were expensive you had to dress nicely to go you had to pay money to get in uh, and there was a particular mode of conduct while you were there you know very much so like you're in a in a european concert setting therefore poor and working class local people could not get in However, that didn't stop them from hearing the music. Those excluded from the club would congregate outside to hear the music escaping from the open windows and have their own party out on the street. It was those excluded individuals that were responsible for naming the genre. They called it high life because they simply didn't reach the class of the couples going inside. Hence, you had to be a part of the high life to be a part of the music. From informal drinking songs, to military-style brass bands, to tight-knit R&B dance ensembles, the evolution of highlife music paralleled the acculturation that was taking place in West Africa during the time. And while highlife music would continue to evolve and utilize the sounds of funk and reggae and later hip-hop, it's these three evolutions of sound that are considered to be the origin of highlife music. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous, fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. You can find us online at sorceresshq.com or on Twitter and Instagram at sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, sorceress fans, stay curious.